Well, amen. It's good to see you all here tonight. Hopefully, as you find your seat, if you would like one of our handouts, uh, you can slip up your hand and we will bring one to you. So just slide your hand up. If you didn't grab one on your way in, we can make sure you've got one uh, before we get started tonight because we do have plenty for you. But we are coming to the end of our study through the book of Ecclesiastes. How about that? Some of you may be uh, excited. Some of you, I know, share with me, you've enjoyed uh, walking through this book because it's just not one that you may not, it's one you don't spend a whole lot of time in, in particular to have studied it in depth in church uh, to this regard. And so we're going to come to the end. I'll try to wrap it all together and just take tonight to look at these last two verses, talk a little bit about the whole book and bring it to a conclusion, in particular showing really the book of Ecclesiastes and connecting it to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll, we'll kind of end with that final conclusion as a portion of it. Um, but I'd like to take uh, these, t- these few minutes uh, to walk through really uh, just these last two verses of Ecclesiastes 12. Uh, just to let you know what we'll be doing for the next few weeks uh, we'll take two or three weeks and do a short study uh, through the book of Philemon. And so we'll do that over the next few weeks uh, as we walk uh, right through the holidays. It'll get us right up to Christmas time on Wednesday night. So it'll fill in a little bit of this time before Christmas as we study through the book of Philemon. Um, but for tonight, we'll be concluding Ecclesiastes. So we'll be in Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. In many ways, this serves as as he'll even say, the conclusion. This is the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. So I'll read verses 13 and 14. I like to just pray for us again, spend a moment in prayer, and then I'll say on it before I pray, just forgive my voice. I have been wrestling this uh, sickness the past couple weeks, and um, some of you commented when you heard me talk on Sunday that you could tell I was struggling a little bit. So... um, if anything, I feel fine. I'm just fighting the cough off now, and um, hopefully I can make it through tonight without uh, coughing into the microphone so you can hear it at a loud volume. So uh, we'll try to avoid that. But uh, I'd like to uh, read Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14, and we'll pray for you guys. Uh, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the fact that we read this today and read these words knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ has been the answer to our need for someone who keeps your commandments. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We read this passage with great peace and security found in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know in that, Lord, we can come to you with great boldness and confidence that you will hear our prayers, not because in some way we are righteous and worthy people, but, Lord, because you, uh, through the blood of Christ, have Uh, given us access to be able to come to you, Lord. And so, um, Lord, now as we spend these few moments in your word and even prepare our hearts, we take this a great privilege to be able to have access to speak to you 
and to also hear from your word. So, Lord, bless this time together uh, tonight. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I just have a few points as I walk through the passage tonight. Hopefully points that will connect to this spot. And then what I'll try to do with each one is connect them to Jesus. I like to show how as we come to the conclusion here, Jesus is really, we've mentioned this several times, he is the solution of the book of Ecclesiastes. He is the answer for everything we see. So the first, first point I have for you, the first thing I want to draw out is that truth can be found. Truth can be found. And notice the, the phrase he uses here because, you know, Ecclesiastes has been a bit of a meandering of thoughts, right? We've been through a real journey of all these different various thoughts. And what's interesting is he comes to verse 13 and he says, here is the end of the matter. He says, so even though I've talked about all these things and all these things have been heard, I'm actually going to come to a conclusion. I'm, I'm not doing this just to wander through my various thoughts. I, I actually was thinking through these things to find a truth. You see, the great teacher of Ecclesiastes has been leading us to a conclusion. It's not just been philosophizing for just whatever reason you would desire. You've, he's actually wanted to go somewhere with this. I'd like to take a moment, I know we've been in this book for several weeks, I'd like to take a moment and look at the book as a whole one more time. I won't spend very long on it, but I put an outline on the very back of your page. So if you turn to the back, <clears throat> you can see this outline. This is the one I gave you at the very beginning, if you remember this. It's just the reprint from the ESV Study Bible. I put it in there at the very beginning. But in essence, I wanted to show it to you to point to this, he says, all has been heard. When he's saying that, he's pointing back to all the different arguments he's made. He's walked through this journey. He began with, if you just look, look, follow it with me there, chapters 1 and 2 with this kind of everything is meaningless or everything is vain. Then he went through the natural world, wisdom, pleasures, possessions, even down to the vanity of labor, your work. How oftentimes in all of those things, you can feel as if life is a waste or it's meaningless. It's a struggle sometimes. Even in chapter three, you know, the famous poem of everything, there's a season for everything. You know, sometimes it just feels like life is monotonous and it's just over and over again. And what's going on? And I'm just repeating the same task. What's the point of all of this? He knows that struggle. He, he shares it. Chapter three. He even talks about. Um, you look there at chapter, the end of chapter 3, the vanity again of mortal life, of labor, of wisdom. He comes back to it. Even there in chapter 5, he's going to talk about the vanity of oftentimes pursuing certain types of religion. If you just pursue certain religious activities, is it, does it have meaning? He gets to the end of 5. He talks about all these different things under the sun. I don't know if you remember this. We talked about money and possessions in 5. We talked about how oftentimes chasing after the possessions of this world is fleeting. It's a, it's a waste of time. So well, why don't you try to build all this money up? Ultimately, the heart of the problem is sin. And then he goes to this long list in 8 through 11 of all kinds of, of different things he sees under the sun is a waste. 
living with foolish authorities, fearing God. You see the list there. The limits of human knowledge. These are all things we've talked about. Even down to <clears throat> the unpredictability of life. You know, we spent a whole week, a couple weeks ago, we spent a whole week on death. Just how all the time, at the end of life, it just sometimes can seem meaningless. The, the difficulties and the challenges of that. The pastor talked last week about aging and the challenges as you age and you face all these questions. So I'll walk back through that whole outline with you to say that, that this whole point as you walk through Ecclesiastes has been drawing to where he says, now everything is heard, here is the end of the matter. He's been pressing to this conversation. Uh, so here's a, here's a couple things, um, particularly about this meaningless pursuit. And one of the things I think oftentimes happens is that as people talk about philosophies, the temptation is to just wander through those and never actually pursue a conclusion. Meaning that they just enjoy asking all the questions, but never actually picking anything. You say, is that really popular? Well, um, there's a group of, in America now, as they kind of gauge religious activity, they'll look and say there's groups of evangelicals, but they'll also speak um, about, are there groups of evangelicals, are there groups of Catholics, but then they've come up with this group of what they call nuns, and I don't mean like Catholic nun, what I mean are people that claim no religious affiliation at all. So when they ask, what religion are you? They say, I have none. I don't choose anything. And uh, I was looking at a study, and uh, what I was reading about today is this group of nuns now uh, represent 23% of the population of America. It's actually eclipsed. Um, it's up from 21.6% in 2016. And it's actually, it's at 23.1%. And the group claiming to be evangelicals is 22.5. So now there are more people in America that would claim no religion than there are people that would claim Christianity or some sort of evangelical faith. So this is the struggle of people that are not desiring to pick anything. It's as if they want to ask all the questions but not actually answer anything. And so I think that a lot of people find themselves caught in the middle of the book of Ecclesiastes. I don't know what the meaning of this is. I don't know how any religion can answer it. I have all these questions, and then they just stop. They don't actually pursue a real truth. And so um, oftentimes when you engage folks like this, particularly with the gospel, they're hard to talk to. Because they'll tell you all the things that are wrong with your religion. But then if you try to pin them down, they don't actually believe anything to prove wrong. They have no stances to stand on. It can be a very difficult conversation. And in something as Christians, we've got to learn how to engage these conversations with people that don't believe anything. And so I just pause in the book of Ecclesiastes to catch. There are people that I think get stuck in the middle of asking all these questions and never reach a conclusion in the matter. But as Christians, we know there is a truth to be found. There is a conclusion to this matter. And even here in the book of Ecclesiastes, 
he knows there is a definitive final truth to be found here. And so I want to point us to what that truth is, in particular what these truths are and how they connect to Jesus. So here's my second point, is that God must be feared. God must be feared. So verse, verse 13, he says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. And he begins this phrase. I'm just going to break every phrase down. He begins this phrase and he says, fear God. The very first thing, his reference of all of this question he's been posing, the first thing he says is we should fear God. So he's been struggling that all of life is meaningless. Nothing matters at all. And the very first thing that helps him make everything matter is a fear of God. Like an anchor to the soul. As if nothing in the world will ever give meaning apart from anchoring yourself to a fear of God. I mean, think all the way back to the first question he asked. Chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. He says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He said life is meaningless. So what's the conclusion? The way you find meaning is to fear God. God's the only one who will give this meaning. And so who ultimately would show the greatest reverential awe, fear of God himself is the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what I want to do is, as we'll walk through tonight. I'll take one of these points, and then I'll draw it down to Jesus. So here's my point here with Jesus. I'll draw you to the New Testament with him here. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. It says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because, and here's a strange word here, because of his reverence. And now, I want to say Jesus was God himself, so there's a level of this that's hard to grasp. But there was a reverence to God the Father here. There was a sense in which he was going to be submissive to God the Father. And so, for even in Jesus, even as he lived this earth, he lived it submissive to God. And so I think for us, as we look at our lives only make sense if we genuinely fear God. And there's only one who has lived a life that has completely been in awe and reverence to God, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one. And so when we say here, here's the whole content of the matter, go fear God, every single one of us fail at the first step. So we need one who ultimately showed this reverence for God. Let me, it's not... And fear plays itself out in obedience. You say, well, is it this kind of cowering fear? Uh, or is it an actual honoring fear? In many ways, it's an obedient fear. The second point, third point is God must be obeyed. God must be obeyed. <clears throat> Notice the, the second part of the phrase. <clears throat> The end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God, and what? Keep his commandments. 
So not only is it fearing God, but in order to truly fear God, you must obey God. You only will obey what you fear. There's my watch. So you will only obey what you fear. So if something you genuinely are worried about, that's what you will reference your life to. Let me give you a couple examples. Let's talk first about a teenager. And let's, let's give this first example. Let's talk about the teenager to his parents and to his friends. So if a teenager is genuinely in a, and I don't mean this in like a, a malicious way, but genuinely has a reverential fear of his parents, he's going to try to do whatever he can to honor his parents, try to listen to them, try to do what he most cares about for them. But if the teenager all of a sudden one day wakes up and becomes afraid of the fact that his friends might not accept him and his fear is greater on the fact his friends might not accept him, on whether his parents should be honored, where does his allegiance go? It shifts, right? Because he's all of a sudden more afraid of losing respect with his friends than he is whether he loses respect with his parents. And all of a sudden when that shifts, the fear of losing that respect becomes where your allegiance goes. Ultimately, if you fear God, you will obey God. The same, you, you struggle with this all the time. There's there's a struggle oftentimes with fearing man over God. You, you will sometimes do things to please people in the instance while you know it displeases God. It, it, it could be a boss at work that you always are so worried about making sure you do whatever they want and it, it makes you, it just wraps up your mind and you, you're way more worried about what the boss thinks than you are actually what God thinks about your life. So ultimately, your fear of God, your reverence of him, your reference to him in your life will ultimately result in your obedience of God. So Jesus himself was the one who ultimately obeyed God. Even when we could not obey, his obedience was for us. We just, we just read this in Romans. It says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness, this obedience of Christ, leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. You see, it's Christ's obedience that will make us righteous. We, we can't do this. So when we look at the end of Ecclesiastes 12 and say, fear God and keep his commandments, I can't do this apart from Christ. He is the ultimate answer to the burden that is placed on us in Ecclesiastes 12. Calls for fearing God and keeping his commandments. Because only in Christ can we fulfill these commands. Now, not only is it that we must fear God, not only must we keep his commandments, but all people, no matter who they are, must Fear God. See, this, this, this text draws it under the entire planet. Everybody in the world falls under this. Look at the phrase there. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. This is man's job, meaning that this particular command that he is summarizing 
isn't just for a certain group of people. This is for all of us. Everybody falls under this deal. Everybody needs Christ. Everybody needs him to cover this and to be their righteousness. So even as he calls for this command to obey, it draws us to Christ. So when we say all people, think to the New Testament. That's why you think of a verse you know very well, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. There's a sense of Christ is there to fulfill this righteous requirement. And it's available to the whole world. Because the whole world is required to be holy. Even down to the gospel. We think about it in Romans. I'll reference it again. Romans 1.16. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So, this is oftentimes confusing for us that the only way we can fulfill these righteous requirements is through Christ justifying us eternally. And then after we become believers, we can do this through Christ working in our lives. There's no way that Ecclesiastes 12 can work in your life without Christ. You cannot do these things apart from him. And so that's why it's so important as we think about sharing the gospel, everybody needs Christ to make these things happen. And so this entire book has been building this point, all the meaninglessness of life. And, and the book does not make sense apart from Christ coming and fulfilling all of these things. I'll give you one last one. <clears throat> we'll spend a couple minutes here. Judgment is coming. There is judgment coming. You know, one of the themes you see oftentimes in the Old Testament, that you, if you start paying attention to it, is a major theme, is the coming judgment of God. If you read through your Bible every year, or if you read through your Bible, you'll see this as an often talked about idea to understand. We have to know judgment before we can know grace. And so verse 14 is actually how the entire book ends. It's a fascinating verse to end on. It says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil, brought in this way. So every, everything is brought under judgment. Every single act. Meaning there, there's not going to be something that somebody does that will not be brought under the judgment of God. So this can be, in some ways, encouraging to you today. Some of you could look at this passage and know that maybe somebody has sinned against you, and you feel harmed or hurt, and you say, how is it that they've lived this life on earth, and they've completely gotten away with it? Well, here's the answer. Nobody gets away with anything. The Bible said here that God will bring every deed into judgment. In fact, the book of Romans will say that, that people are actually storing up wrath for the day of judgment. 
God does not let it all out. But there will be judgment placed on every single person. So if you say, it's not fair, trust me, people will be paid whatever they have done wrong. Now, what you have to hope in is that that payment will land on Christ and by the grace of God will not land on you. So in other words, the debt will be paid. It's just a matter of who pays it. So as we sit here and look at this, we know that every single thing happens. So this is just a good reminder to pause. And um, with the room this size, the group this big, that the writer here knew that some people think and can deceive themselves that some of their sin is completely hidden from everybody. But the Bible says that every secret thing he will judge. So no matter what you may think you have hidden or what you may have tucked away in your mind, because you can sin there and it's never seen, every single thing will come under the judgment of God. And so we just have to remember the seriousness of our sin and how there's not certain ones that won't make it in there on judgment day. Every single one of them will. So let's talk about how Jesus plays into this. <clears throat> now you guys might get out on Brian Davis time tonight if we don't watch it, so my voice not, might, might not make it the whole time. <clears throat> but let's talk about how Jesus fits in the, in particular for judgment because He's really a, a dual role here. Jesus is coming to judge us. Notice I put there in your outline, Matthew chapter 25. There's other verses I could have used, but I picked this one. And this, this passage is actually longer than this, but I didn't put it all in here. Matthew 25 says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations. And look what he'll do. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Interesting reference since just a couple verses up, it talks about there is a one shepherd referring to Christ here in Ecclesiastes. But ultimately, Jesus will come in glory and be the one to help separate those who are followers of him and those who are not. So, this is a good reminder, and I think often a good question to ask people, particularly when you're sharing the gospel, is that we know that one day Jesus will come, and Jesus will then separate people into two groups. The Bible describes it here, right? I think it's a simple question to ask folks, which group do you think you will be in? I think it's a very clear way to ask a clear gospel question. Where do you think you'll land? Because Jesus will divide the group. But ultimately this judgment is coming. And when it's speaking about judgment that sees all things, Jesus is the one who will do that. So again, I'm pointing Ecclesiastes 12. Jesus will be the judge. But then, I thought this was a pretty neat verse today as I was looking around. Uh, hopefully you'll find it as interesting as I did. Luke chapter 11. 
The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment. And with the men of this generation and condemn them. So we're talking about the judgment, right? For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So even as we're looking at this book of Ecclesiastes that has this Solomon thinking about all of the wealth and riches and all the thoughts and world that he had, that at the very end of the day of judgment, there will be something greater than Solomon there. Ultimately, not only will Jesus be the judge on that day, he will be the justifier for us. He will be the one who stands in our stead and is the one who will give us the righteousness that we need on that day of judgment. He will be the one who is our righteousness. And in fact, even before that, Jesus will come and say, I am the one who gives abundant life, which is the whole problem in Ecclesiastes. It's this meaningless life. Jesus is the one who gives abundant, meaningful life. He is the one who answers all of the problems and the struggles that we face throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. He's the one who answers when money is wearing out all of a sudden. If we say, was well, this money really fulfilling me? No, it's not. Jesus is the one who ultimately fulfills. When you feel the struggles of the pain of life and sickness and death and the struggles that you face, ultimately Jesus is the one who gives the abundant life, and the meaning to all of these things. And then when you think about the end and when God will stand before, you'll stand before him in judgment, you'll know that Jesus is ultimately the one who makes you right before him. Jesus is ultimately the answer to the book of Ecclesiastes. And I hope you've been able to see that as we walked all the way from chapter 1 to chapter 12, as we've dealt with a lot of these questions and wrestled through them. So what I'd like to do is conclude with a, a prayer time tonight. We'll pray for a couple minutes together, and then we do have a, a business conference, a church conference to go into here at the very end of our time. So we'll have a few minutes to do that before we dismiss, and we'll get out of here a little bit early, and I won't cough into the microphone again either. So here's what I like to do. Let's, let's take a few moments and, and pray. And I just want to ask you a few questions at the end of this book. If you'll just bow your head, close your eyes as we pray. I want to begin with this first question for you. Are, are there areas of your life currently that you are finding meaning, that you, you know are meaningless without Christ? And you need to repent of pursuing those areas now and turn to Christ. Are there spots in your life you know that you're investing your life in right now and you just know that you're pursuing the wrong thing? You, you know it's wrong. You've known it's been wrong. And you need to confess it to him that you need to pursue Christ in that area of your life. Take it right now. Just confess a way in which maybe... You've not been pursuing him in the right manner.
Now I want to try praying for one more thing. Many of you know somebody right now that would fit the bill of the book of Ecclesiastes. Their life is a pursuit of meaningless things. They need the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to pray for their soul right now. That they would find Christ to be ultimately the meaning of their life. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great hope we have in Christ. We thank you for the fact for so many of us here we can give testimony of how you have saved us from so many areas we could have spent our life on nothing. You have brought us into your church and allowed us to live a life that has great purpose and meaning to your glory. Lord, we lift these names to you now of individuals who need to know you as their Savior. We pray right now they would, they would find their pursuit of the world to be utterly meaningless. And Lord, they would, they would have their eyes open to see the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. They might turn for them, their sin and turn to you. We pray for their souls tonight. We ask you to work in their lives. Lord, we thank you for the great abundant life we have in Christ. We give you praise and glory for it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.